everybody and welcome to the inaugural New Life Media Members Podcast. This is Branson Villardo and we are excited to have you with us. We believe that we have a revelatory word for you today. You may remember that when we looked at the structure of Genesis 1 through 11 and ultimately the progression of mankind from the Garden of Eden all the way through the fall to the Tower of Babel where they're then scattered throughout the earth, it was ultimately, we we saw that it was a picture of what was going to happen throughout Israel's history, that Israel would start in their own Garden of Eden, in the Promised Land, and in the end they would end up at the tower of at their own Tower of Babel, in exile in Babylon, scattered amongst the nations. And today what we're going to do is we're going to take a deeper look at a particular story within Genesis 1 through 11. We're actually going to look at the story of man in the Garden of Eden, and we're going to see how that particular story actually foreshadows an event that's going to come, well, multiple events that are going to come later on in Israel's history. So we believe we have a revelatory word for you, and we're excited to dig in. The story of man in the Garden of Eden starts in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, where God takes man, he takes Adam that he's created, and he puts man in the garden to dress it and to keep it. And then God gives man a command saying this, that you can eat from every tree in the garden. In fact, uh, it's written in the Hebrew where that's actually a command that you should eat from every tree in the garden. But he says at the same time, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I don't want you to eat from it. In the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. And then God says, you know what? It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make for him a helper. Uh, and he creates woman. And then if you hop over to Genesis 3, it happens that uh, one day the serpent comes up to the woman and, and asks, asks the woman, did God really command you not to eat Uh, of this tree in the garden, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she says, yep, you know what? We can't eat it. We can't even touch it. Otherwise, we'll die. And the serpent says, no, you won't die. In fact, God just is telling you that because he doesn't want you to be like him, which we all know is ridiculous. In fact, God what, what happens there is that the serpent's really attacking the very identity of the woman, the very identity of mankind, because you'll remember that man and woman were created in the image of God. So for him to say that God doesn't want God doesn't want mankind to be like him. Well, God created mankind uh, like him. So, so there was nothing they needed to do to become more like God. But ultimately what happened is that the woman, she sees the, the fruit of the tree and she decides that it's good to eat. So she takes it, she eats it, she gives it to her husband, she gives it to Adam, and he eats it as well. Then their eyes are opened and they both realize that they're naked, so they sew some fig leaves together uh, to cover themselves. The Lord, he's walking about in the garden and he starts calling out uh, to Adam and Eve and he says, where are you? Uh, and Adam says, you, we, we heard you, we heard your voice walking about in the garden and so we hid. And, and God says, uh, uh, because we were naked and God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat of that tree? I commanded you not to. And then uh, we have the infamous blame game where 
the man says, the woman who you gave me, God, uh, don't forget you gave me her. Uh, she was the one who gave me to eat of the tree, and because of that I did. And then obviously the curse and uh, the curse comes, and and mankind is cast out of the garden. But I want to take a deeper look at how this story relates to another story later in Israel's history. Just like Genesis 1 through 11 uh, tells the story of mankind going from the Garden of Eden to the Tower of Babel, and in the same way that that foreshadows uh, the story of Israel going from the Promised Land to Babylon, uh, the story of the Garden of Eden itself foreshadows another story later in Israel's history, and that's actually uh, the story of Israel at Mount Sinai and their sin with the golden calf. So let me go ahead and point out for you just a few of the similarities between the Garden of Eden and the position of the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. You'll remember that in the Garden of Eden, what happens is that the chosen people, the chosen man of humanity is cast out of the presence of God. But back, but but then you fast forward uh, when man's cast out of the Garden of Eden, but then you fast forward to Exodus 24. And if you go to Exodus 24 and verse 12, you'll see that man is actually called back into the presence of God. The Lord says unto his chosen man, he says unto Moses, come up to me to the mount and be there and I'll give you the tables of stone and the law and the commandment which I have written that thou mayest teach them, that thou mayest teach the children of Israel. So in the same way that Genesis 3, man was cast out of the presence of God, in Exodus 24 all of a sudden there's a call placed on an individual man, a chosen man, Moses, who, uh, there, there's a call placed on his life and God says, you know what, I want you to come back into my presence. I'm bringing humanity back in to my presence. But we all know the story of uh, of what happens while Moses is on that mount and we all know the story of what happens in the garden. You'll remember that in the garden of Eden it was at least the way it's the way it's written it's it's the woman it's it's Adam's wife who influences him to sin and ultimately lose his connection with the Lord. You fast forward later to the story of the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, and who is it that sins? While while Moses is up in the presence of God on Mount Sinai, his uh, his wife, you could say, or or his people, the children of Israel, who in the same way that Adam is paralleled to Moses, Eve is paralleled to the children of Israel. It's the children of Israel who sinned while Moses is on Mount Sinai in building for them a golden calf. You'll remember that when, uh, in the same way that after man is cast out of the garden, uh, after man's cast out of the garden, there's cherubim placed at the entrance to to dwell there and protect from, from man getting to the tree of life or ultimately the presence of God. And then later on in the book of Exodus, Moses constructs a tabernacle. And, and at the front of that, the, the veil of that tabernacle had, had two great cherubim on it to protect from anyone entering into the Holy of Holies or entering in to the presence of God. You'll remember that as a result 
of Adam's sin in Genesis 3, the only way that that sin could be atoned for, now this is awesome, the only way that that sin could be atoned for was that Adam would return to dust, that he would return to the ground from which he was taken. And then you fast forward to Exodus 20, and what you'll see is that in Exodus 20, verse 24, it says, the Lord commands his people, he says, that when you make the altar, don't make it of stone, I want an altar of earth. Why? Because the only way to atone for man's sin is through the earth from which he was taken. And finally, you'll remember that as a result of man's sin in the garden, he was forced to cover his nakedness. Then you fast forward to the book of Exodus, that same chapter, Exodus 20, when it's talking about that altar that the Lord commands that when you go up on that altar, that altar that must be of the earth, it must be made of the earth because the only way to atone for man's sin is from is from the earth. It's interesting because the the law specifies that when you go and approach the altar, you can't have steps leading up to the altar. And the reason for that is because when you go up on the altar, I don't want your nakedness to be uncovered. Because obviously with the type of clothing they wore during that time period, if you had steps, you could see up their clothing. So, so you can't have steps. You have to have a ramp that leads up to the altar. And the reason for that is to cover your nakedness. Just like back in the Garden of Eden, you had to cover your nakedness. But I want to dump, jump into a few more similarities that are, that are even more uh, intriguing and that are even more clear as it relates to the sin of eating the fruit of the tree and as it relates to the sin of the golden calf. It's interesting that the similarities between the story of the children of Israel and and their wanderings in the wilderness and their experience at Mount Sinai, the parallels between that story and the story of the Garden of Eden goes beyond the basic broad similarities that we just discussed. There's a lot of specific similarities between Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, eating of the fruit of the tree, and the sin of the golden calf that the children of Israel commit in Exodus 32. So let's take a look here, if we would, at some of the similarities between Genesis 2 and 3 and Exodus 32 when the children of Israel commit that sin of the golden calf. Now you'll remember that just prior to their sin, uh, in Genesis 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve are described as not being ashamed, that they were naked, but they were not ashamed. Then if you fast forward to Exodus 32, it's interesting. Exodus 32, verse 1 says this, And when the people saw that Moses delayed, to come down from the mount. You'll remember Moses is up on the on Mount Sinai receiving the law from the Lord, and the people see that he delays, that he's taking longer than they expected. That word delay actually comes from the same root as the word ashamed in Genesis 2. And that's particularly relevant because it's a rare root, uh, the root bosher, boshesh, um, it's a rare root that doesn't occur often in the Hebrew. So already at the very beginning, there's a, there's a signal to, to the attentive reader that these two stories are going to be linked. Then in Genesis 3, 6, you'll remember that how is it that Adam and Eve, they transgress the command given to them by the Lord? Well, it's by eating. 
they eat the fruit of the tree from which they weren't supposed to eat. If you go to Exodus 32, not only do the children of Israel build a golden calf, but in verse 6, it says this, that they rose up early in the morning uh, and they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings and they sat down, the people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to make merry. So not only did the sin in Genesis 3 occur by the act of eating, but in Exodus 32, the act of eating was involved as well. After Adam and Eve have sinned in Genesis 3, you find the Lord comes and he inquires from each of them. He says, first to the man, did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to? And then, of course, the man says, well... I did, but it was because of the woman who you gave to me. She gave to me of the tree, and I ate. And then uh, God asked the woman, he said, well, what, what have you done? And, and the woman says, well, the serpent, he, he beguiled me, he deceived me. Well, a similar inquiry, in the same way that the Lord inquires of uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and he inquires of those who, of, of those who didn't sin about those who did sin. In verse 21, Moses goes to Aaron and he says, what did this people do to you? What, they, what have they done to you that you have brought a great sin upon them? And, and again, it's very similar phrases in the Hebrew. It, at the end of Genesis 3, what happens is that Adam, he's condemned to death. And in order to assure that he dies, he's cast out of the garden from the tree of life and a flaming sword is placed at the, ent- at the entrance to the garden to ensure that he doesn't get to the tree of life. Well, in Exodus 32, verse 27, the, those people who had sinned with the golden calf, they were sentenced to death. And guess how they, they put the, guess how the children of Israel put them to death? By the sword, just like in Genesis uh, 3. And then finally, one last similarity, and then I'm going to tie all this together and tell you why all this is relevant. In Genesis 3, the man, he's sent out of the Garden of Eden from the presence of the Lord, and he's not able to go in the way of life. In the way of life. It's a, it's a key term that's found in verses 23 and verses 24. And, and then finally, in the same way that, that, the, that Adam and Eve are cast out, of the garden. At the end of the story in Exodus 32, if you follow on to Exodus 33, the Lord, again, he says that he's going to send his angel who will cast out. This time, though, he's not going to cast out uh, the the children of Israel. He's going to cast out the people of Canaan. And again, it's the same word in the Hebrew. And he's going to lead Israel on the way. So this story and and all the similarities between Genesis and Exodus are fascinating. But you may be asking, what's the point? Why are there all these similarities? Well, actually, the meaning of the similarities is found in the differences. There's little nuances, little differences between the stories that point 
to a greater meeting. Let me, let, let me tell you what I mean by that. If you remember, in Genesis 3, you had Adam, and then in Exodus 32, you have Moses. In Genesis 3, you have Eve, and then in Exodus 32, you have Israel. So those four characters, they're paralleled to one another. And what we learn is that there's a slight difference. There's no difference between Eve and Israel. They both sin in the same way. But there is a difference between Adam and Moses. Adam, in in Genesis 3, he sins. But Moses, in Exodus 32, he doesn't take part in the sin. And so as a result of the fact that Moses doesn't take part in the sin that the children of Israel commit, in Exodus 34, when the Lord says, you know what, I'm just going to destroy this people and I'm going to start over again with you, Moses, which he would have been right to do, and which is what he did in the very beginning at the book of Genesis, is that he said, you know what, I'm just going to destroy this people, I'm going to cast them out of the garden. But when, rather, than, rather than having the Lord just destroy the people of Israel, Moses, because he didn't sin, is able to intercede on behalf of the children of Israel. And because of Moses' ability to abstain from sin, he was an effective intercessor on the Israelites' behalf. But what happens? As we know throughout the story of Israel, Moses doesn't re- remain blameless for the entire story. In the end, he does commit sin. He he uh, hits a rock instead of speaking to it. And because of that, even Moses isn't able to enter the promised land. But what this story does, what the contrast between these stories do is that it creates a category for the reader, is that the reader is able to look at both stories and they see an improvement, you see, because God pretty much did away with humanity when he cast Adam out of the Garden of Eden. But when you get to the book of Exodus, God doesn't do away with the children of Israel. He continues to work with them. And the reason for that is that there was one individual, there was a leader amongst the children of Israel who abstained from sin and because of that remained an effective intercessor. Now in the end he fails and and so do the children of Israel and they're not able to enter the promise. But it creates this category that if, if we're the children of Israel, what we need, we need another Moses. We need another uh, individual who's able to abstain from sin and intercede on our behalf. And in that way, these two stories both point to Jesus because they create this category in the mind of the reader. We need somebody who will abstain from sin when we sin, but at the same time is going to have mercy on us and is going to intercede on our behalf that we don't get destroyed. And that's where Jesus steps in and he's an even greater prophet than Moses in this that he, he comes in, not only does he refrain from sin uh, or refrain from the initial sin, he refrains from sin throughout the journey. And because of that, unlike Moses, Moses wasn't able to make it from, uh, from Egypt to the promised land, but Jesus will take you. He'll take you from your Egypt. He'll take you from your slavery. He'll take you from that place of bondage and he'll lead you all the way through the wilderness. He won't sin with you in the wilderness, but he'll continue to lead you through to the promised land. I pray that this has been a blessing to you, that you've learned something, and that you've taken something with you that will encourage you throughout your day.